You may be seated, and uh, we're going to be looking at a couple different scriptures together today. I know it's Easter Sunday, and, and Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and it's a chance for us to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in a way that, um, that the world couldn't do because they don't know Jesus in the way that, that maybe you and I know Jesus Christ. But uh, because we have this relationship with Jesus, we get to celebrate the, the resurrection and celebrate what God did, the great power that God exerted uh, when he raised Christ from the dead. And I think the best news in all of this is the Bible says that the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is, is available for you and I. So, so the, the power that God exerted to, to, to bring Christ back to life is also the same power that Jesus uses to bring us into life and then to sustain that life in us. Uh, so what we want to talk about this morning is, is, is about that resurrection, but I want to come at it maybe a little bit different way than we have done before. I, I think that this power that's in the resurrection is amazing in itself, but I think there's something maybe greater than the resurrection. And you say, Rob, that, that sounds almost uh, uh, evil to say there's something more powerful than the resurrection, something greater than the resurrection. And, and I don't mean that to, to sound sarcastic, but I want to I talk to you about the love behind the resurrection. Because were there not the love of God, there would be no resurrection. Were there no love of God, there had been no sacrifice. There had been no need for a resurrection because the Messiah wouldn't have come and Jesus wouldn't have died. And, and there wouldn't have been no, uh, a need for anyone to have been resurrected. I think the, the, maybe the, the greatest part of the resurrection story is the love that's behind that. The love that motivated Jesus to come. It's a love that was eternal, a love that began long before we were created. I think for some people, they, they look at, at what, what God did and they say, okay, God created and he put man in a garden with his wife and he gave him this perfect environment and they messed it up and then God was left scratching his head going, all right, we got to fix this. How are we going to fix this boo-boo? But scripture tells us something different. Scripture tells us that the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection and all of that was God's plan long before he created. The Bible describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So this love that we're going to talk about today didn't just begin because God felt sorry for us. It didn't just begin because God goes, wow, these are really good people and I hate to send them to hell. The, the love that we're going to talk about today is, is eternal. It, it was eternal in the past, and it's going to be eternal into our future. This, this resurrection uh, was an incredible feat. None of us can go up to a dead body and, and, and speak, and that body come to life. We don't have that power. But for God, that's just natural. God spoke, and everything was created. God spoke, and people came back to life. God spoke, and his son was resurrected from the dead. That's, that's simple for God. What I think is more complicated and, and, and even more um, uh, difficult is to love your creation who's walked away from you and to be willing to sacrifice yourself for that creation. That's a powerful love. And so something that's, that's tougher to do, maybe even greater, is this love that motivated God to save us in the first place. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, Shannon read those verses for us earlier, but, but those verses kind of sum it up. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
God so loved us that, that he gave, but that love began long before. So it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son, the one and only son of God. So here, here's what, what we're, we're, we're hitting on right up front is this, that there's, there's two kinds of people. There are those who will be saved and those who will be condemned. And, and while that sounds harsh, that's, that's the reality of Scripture, is that there's, there's two kinds of people. There are those who have come to Christ and, and had faith in him and have been born again and will be saved because of what Jesus did. And there's those who think that there must be some other way. And they'll be condemned because they've not put their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ. And so he says here, though, that God so loved us that he sent his son that, that we don't have to be condemned. That we don't have to die and, and, and die a life apart from the Lord. And so uh, this, this was God's plan from the very beginning. So God loves and God gives. And, and he did so to save us from this condemnation. Now, again, I want you to understand this is not God's plan B. It's not that God created Thinking that man would be perfect, thinking that man would never mess up and never be, need to be redeemed. God knew from the very beginning that he would send his son before he ever created this world. Before he ever created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God already knew that the cross lie ahead, that the cross would be needed, that his son would have to die. In, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a story, and it's actually almost a testimony of, of, of him and the Father. But, but in, this, in this passage, in, in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation... And is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. God is the planner. God is the builder. God is the creator. And, and, and I don't want you to think for a second that God created without a plan to finish. The Bible says that, that he that began the good work in us will see it through to completion. And, 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 and this God that, that is, is in heaven before creation saying, I am about to create, also knew that he was going to redeem. He also knew that it would cost him his son's life. And so Jesus is warning us that, that when you start a project, count the cost and know what it's done, or else you'll lay a foundation and you'll never be able to finish it. Wouldn't that have been something if God would have created and never been able to see it through to completion? He was willing to create, but he wasn't willing to redeem. But, but God wasn't that. God was the one who looked ahead. He was the, the builder. He was the, the gardener. He was the, the one that, that created it all, knowing that he would have to redeem it. In, in some ways, in a very small way, I guess I could say, we who get to be parents make a similar choice. There's not one of us, I don't think, that goes into parenthood thinking, I'm going to have the perfect child who will never hurt me, who will never sin, who will never fall short. We, 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 we 
give birth to children knowing that they're going to break our hearts and that they're going to need to be corrected, that they're going to need to be drawn close, that they're going to need to be loved and reassured in, in that process. And God creates us knowing that he's going to have to redeem us and knowing the cost of redemption is going to be the death of his son. And so Jesus comes into this world and he lives. And, and many may wonder, well, why in the world would God create knowing that he was going to have to, to sacrifice his son? And the only answer I've got to that is just that God's love is beyond our understanding. It's beyond the, our ability to, to fathom. Some will look at the Old Testament sacrificial system and say, well, didn't God give us a way to, to, to sacrifice animals and those animals' blood would cover our sins and would make us right with God? And, and while God did institute the sacrificial system and God did give the Old Testament law and God did say, this is what perfection looks like and this is what I demand. As we'll see this morning in the passage in, in Hebrews, God never intended for that sacrificial system to make us perfect before God. God never intended that those, those animal sacrifices and all that stuff that was required in the Old Testament, that it be the, the, the remedy for our sin. In fact, what we'll see this morning is he says it's not the remedy, but it's the reminder. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament, all the, the stuff that they did in the Old Testament yearly was simply a reminder that we still stood in need of a Savior. So I want us to look this morning in, in Hebrews, and, and we'll focus on chapters 8, 9, and 10 a little bit together. And, and in this passage, he wants to help us understand that this Old Testament system was never intended to save us. In fact, it couldn't. It talks about that Old Testament system being a, a weak system, and it was, it was uh, helpless to, to save any of us. But the point of the Old Testament system was to point us to our need for the true Messiah. For that spotless Lamb of God who would come and who would die in our place. And so this Old Testament system didn't, didn't come into existence in order to save us, but to point us to the Savior, to prepare us for the Savior. And to illustrate exactly what the Savior would do for us. I find it interesting that when Jesus died, it was during the Passover week. Many scholars will say that they believe that Jesus died at the very moment that the, the, the animal was to be sacrificed in the temple. Everything God did in the Old Testament, guys, was to lead up to the coming of the Son of God. He instituted the system. He, he instituted the sacrificial system. He, he brought priests in that would, would, would offer uh, animal blood on the altar for themselves and then for the people. And, and all of these things were, were pictures of what was going to take place when Jesus finally arrived. They had the law that was given to tell them what perfection looked like. They had the priests that were to mediate between them and God and to kind of stand in the gap and offer the sacrifices. They had the tabernacle and then the temple, which was a place where, 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 where God's presence would dwell. And, and it would be in the midst of the people, yet separate from the people. There was that curtain that stood between them and God, that, that, that God was close but just far enough away. And Jesus comes, and at his death, remember what the Bible says, that that, that that veil was torn and ripped in two. The writer of Hebrews will say that Jesus made a way. We sang about that already this morning, that Jesus made a way back to the Father, where there's nothing now standing between us and the Father if we come through Christ. And so he shows us here that the, that the Old Testament system was, was not the remedy. It was just the reminder uh, Hebrews 8.5 says it was a, a shadow of the things to come. And then in verse 6, uh, Hebrews 8.6, let's look at that together if you've got your Bibles. It'll, it'll be on the screen as well. But, but in Hebrews chapter 8, 
beginning uh, in, in verse 6. He says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The writer of Hebrews is comparing the Old Testament covenant and, and what it was weak and powerless to do with what Jesus came and completely accomplished. And he says that here that, that, that Christ has obtained this ministry, this, this, this work that is much more excellent than the old uh, ministry of the sacrificial system. That the covenant that God made in the Old Testament was weak and, and, and lifeless compared to this covenant that Jesus created, which was the new covenant in his blood. He says that first covenant, if it had been faultless, if we could have been saved through keeping the Old Testament covenant, if we could have been saved by keeping the Old Testament law, then there would have been no reason for God to send his son and establish a second. Look in chapter 9, uh, and, and you'll see also there that, that he continues to talk about that man's best um, was just not enough. Even though in the Old Testament, when the families would come once a year and they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord, they were called by God to bring their best animal. They were called to bring the best of their crops. They were called to bring the, the best of themselves and, and to give that to the Lord every year. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and all of that, the best that they could offer still was not enough. I want you to think about that because for, for many in our world today, they think that all God expects is our best. Just give God your best and it'll all work out. Just do your best, be your best, and it'll all work out. But that's not the gospel. And that's not biblical. The Bible says our best is not enough. Just like when these Old Testament saints would come and, and would give to God their very best animal, animals without spot or defect. And they would give that to God. And then we get to the New Testament and God says, yeah, that was never enough. Your best is not enough either. And that can get frustrating because for those who are trying to work their way into heaven and are trying to earn their way or to deserve God's salvation, it's frustrating to hear that that's not enough. And you go, well, then what can I do? And, and there's basically three options that we have when we realize that, that our best is not enough. I can either give up and just say, well, the heck with it. If, if what God wants from me and what I can give to God is not enough, then I'm just going to quit. We can give up. The second option is we can kind of bow up and say, well, I'll just try harder. I've just got to get better. I've got to, I've got to rid my life of those temptations. I've got to think good thoughts. I've got to be positive. I've got to, and I'm just going to try harder. I'll just, instead of giving up, I'm going to bow up. I'm just going to work harder. Both of those fail. So we can give up. We can bow up. But what God calls us to do is to look up. To say, you know what? I can't. No matter how hard or how long I try, I can't. And so the third option is the biblical option, and that is to, to look up, to, to look to someone who can and who has and who will on our behalf. And that's Jesus. And, and that's the story of the gospel is that Jesus came to do what we could not do. Jesus came to do what the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do. And he did it for us because he loved us. 
And so in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and following, um, look what he says. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, and he's just drawn this illustration of of what the priest in in the Old Testament would do. And he says, now Jesus is is our high priest. He's the one that could go into the Holy of Holies, could go into the, the presence of God. Because in the Old Testament, only once a year was the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He would offer blood for his sins and then for the sins of the people. And that was only done once a year and only by the high priest. And he says, Jesus came. That Old Testament system was, was painting a picture for you that, that the restriction into God's presence was limited. And Jesus went into the presence of God as our high priest. And so it says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, it's not of this creation. Let me explain that just a second, because we're skipping some verses, and I know there's a lot there, but I didn't want to keep you here till you know, New Year's. So let's do this, okay? Did I hear an amen? Somebody said amen, uh-huh. Yeah, I know. In the Old Testament, God gave Moses explicit, specific directions on how to build a t- tabernacle and what it was to look like, and that was to be a copy of what the real one would be like in heaven. And so he's talking about this copy. He says, Jesus entered into the tent, not the one made by hands, but the one in heaven, the real one. So he entered into the presence of God, not just a tent that symbolized the presence of God. He says he entered it once and for all, verse 12, into the holy places. But he didn't go there by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's here's what he's saying. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, take blood, sprinkle it, do his thing. And it was the blood of, of bulls and calves and goats. But when Jesus went into the presence of God, he didn't take the blood of animals to present. He took his own blood. Jesus went in the presence of God to offer himself, his blood, his life to the, to, the, to the God that could save. And he says that he went there to obtain for us, to secure for us this eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of your flesh. In other words, it was an outward cleansing, not an inward. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. In other words, Jesus was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself without blemish to God. How much more, he says, will that purify our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator, the stand between, the the one that, that is the mediator of a new covenant. So that... Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, the death of Jesus, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, Jesus did what the first covenant could not do. Jesus came and offered the blood to the Father, but not the blood of animals that that temporarily covers and and just kind of externally covers people's sin but Jesus came and washed our conscience clean 
through his blood. I was working on a project at the house the other day with some metal, and man, I sliced my hand, and, and it just started pouring out blood. And I had a guy working with me. What are we going to do? And I'm like, man, hang on. You give me about three seconds, it'll clot up here and we can keep going, you know? And I grabbed a screw gun and kept drilling and it kept dripping. And you've been there. You've done that kind of stuff where you just, you just keep going. And uh, later that day, I took off my jeans and I had this big old spot of blood on my, my blue jeans. It's still there. <laughs> blood stains, right? It's hard to get out. Something interesting about the blood of Jesus is it doesn't stain. It cleanses. His blood does what the blood of humans or animals or anyone else can't do. And that is that the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And it's only through his sacrifice, only through his blood, that we can find cleansing and that we can find forgiveness from the, from the Father. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. And he redeems us from the sins that we committed in our, in our, in our lives. And then he says in verse 24 and 28 through 28, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself. And he did so to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Remember when the priests would go into the Holy of Holies? He went for himself, and then he went for the people. Well, he says that Jesus went into the presence of God, into heaven itself, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest would go year after year. But Jesus appeared once. It says in verse 26, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What what amazes me about Easter and the resurrection and all that God did in, in, in the Holy Week is the love behind that, that Jesus did this not for himself. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus wasn't dying for his his sin. Jesus was perfect. But he was dying for that sin that you committed yesterday. That sin that I committed yesterday. The sin that I'm going to commit this afternoon if I fall. He died for us, not for himself. And he presented his blood, not the blood of someone else. This was costly to him. And he gave that all for us. And that's the love behind the resurrection. That's the love behind Jesus coming in the first place is the fact that he loved us so much that he would rather die than for us to spend eternity without him. And so he came. And in verse 27, touches on why he came, says, Just as it's appointed to man to die once, and then after that comes judgment. That was God's decree. In the day that you die, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. So all sinners must die. And we die, and then we stand before the Lord in judgment. That's what our fate was before Jesus. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So Christ died once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus comes. 
And the problem was the law couldn't save. It could never make us perfect. It it was just a reminder of our failures and a reminder of how far we fall short. And every time we pick up the word of God, we're convicted of the fact that we are sinners and we've fallen short of the grace of God. And apart from the sacrifice of Jesus, we remain lost. And we remain forever separated from God. But chapter 10 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who want to come into relationship with God. I spent the first 18 years of my life lost, but trying to be good enough to get God to love me. It was exhausting to, to live my life in such a way that I'm thinking, okay, man, I, I know that God's up there and I pictured God as this big old creature that, that, that watched everything I did and when I messed up was just waiting to, 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 to lower the boom on me. And probably out of fear, I, I tried to, to do right. I tried to live my life the right way. I was fortunate to have parents that loved me, that brought me up in the church, that taught me the difference between right and wrong and and, and, and put a healthy fear in me of the Lord. But the result was that I tried to work my way to become pleasing to the Lord. Some of you may be doing the same thing. Where, where you know right and you know wrong, you've been raised by parents who love the Lord, who've lived that in front of you, who've shown you what that looks like. But, but here's, the, here's the problem. You can never get good enough. Your best is not enough. Look back at that sacrificial system. Their best was not enough. And our best has never been intended to, to be the, the avenue for salvation. And so Jesus comes and he, he dies in our place because he was perfect. And his blood has been shed and offered to the Father as atonement for our sins. And so Jesus dies in our place to make us perfect, to make us holy in the presence of the Lord. Because the law could never make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2 says, otherwise they would, have not, would they have not ceased to be offered? In other words, if the sacrifice could make you perfect, then you don't need to come back next year because you've been made perfect. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The purpose of the sacrifice, he says, was to remind us of how much we really needed a Savior. We need to be reminded of that even today. If you're already a Christian and you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be reminded again and again and again what Jesus did for you. Because that reminder then creates gratitude and thanksgiving and joy in your heart that God would love you enough to die in your place. If you've yet to accept Christ as your Savior and you're kind of exploring that and looking at that, the purpose of the gospel is to remind you that you do need him. And that he is your savior and that, that, that he has come to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so the purpose of the gospel is to remind us either of what God has done for us and, and, and how that's applied to our lives as we came to him or what he needs to be doing for us if we will surrender ourselves to him and allow him to do that. And so Jesus, by doing the Father's will, came 
And, and, and scripture says that he, he abolished the, the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. And the new covenant is, is that we are saved through Jesus' sacrifices and, and those alone. So he's made a way for us to go uh, where we were previously forbidden to go. No one other than the high priest was allowed to go into the presence of God. And that, but just once a year. And now, through what Jesus has done for us, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we have been called to come into the presence of God, to come confidently, boldly in the presence of God because of what Jesus did for us, because of the way that Jesus made for us to be back to the Father. I want to say to you this morning that that whether you've accepted Christ as your Savior or whether you're just kind of checking this thing out and trying to decide if this is for you or not, there's only one way back to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. He says in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so here we see that Jesus has made this way for us. He made a way for us to go where we were previously forbidden to go. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Verse 19, let me, let me jump there real quick. Hebrews ten nineteen. he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened up for us through, his, or through the curtain, which is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, and in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. We are called to inspire one another. But not to neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says here that Jesus did away. He made a way for us that was previously not available. He died in our place. He shed his blood, presented that blood to the Father, and made a way for us to come into the presence of God. And so he says, let us draw near with a true heart, with the assurance of our faith, with our hearts clean, our consciences clean, our bodies clean. And let's hold fast to this faith that we have, this confession that we have in Christ. Why? Not because I'm going to be faithful every day, but because he who made the promise is faithful. The security of your salvation does not rest in your ability, but in God's. It doesn't rest in what you can accomplish even after you're born again, but what, in Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so our, our, our salvation is purchased by Jesus, but it's also made secure by Jesus. And it's his love and his sacrifice that changes everything, not just for a little while, but for all eternity. You ever wanted to do something that you've just been just, just out of your reach and you just can't seem to get it done? You ever wanted to have something that just seemed to be right there beyond you and you just, no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you work, no matter what you do, you just can't seem to get that and it can be so frustrating. And for many of you, that's what you feel this relationship with Jesus is like. 
I would like to be on fire. I would like to have this faith in God. I would like to have this, 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 this burning within me that stirs my heart and, and just connects me to God. I'd love to wake up every morning just deeper in love with God. But there's something that just keeps me from that. And, and your choices are the same as those in the Old Testament. You can give up. You can bow up. You can try harder. Or today you can look up and say, God, you know what? I just want to come to you. I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm unable. I can't save myself. I can't even make my heart love you more. But I just want to come to you today, and I just want to say to you, Lord, that, that I want to want you. I want to know you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to have you change everything. God, I understand that before you ever created any of us, your love compelled you to plan our redemption and to come after us. And so, Lord, I just want to give you everything. I want to honor you with, with my life. And, and the result of those kinds of surrender, those kinds of, of, um, of coming before the Lord, is this incredible relationship that begins with Jesus. Something that you and I can't do, but that God does. And he brings us into this relationship and know, helps us to know that, that we are secure in him. Romans 8 summarizes what that's like. Verses 28 and following. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose... Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be made more like Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that Jesus wouldn't be the only one resurrected, but that we would follow in his footsteps, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would also raise us from the dead. And those that he predestined, that he called, and those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? And here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? This, this God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If, if God from the beginning planned to send his son to die on a cross for you and for me, how will he not take care of everything else? If he's loving enough to save us, he's loving enough to keep us. And how will he not graciously give us all things? So who then can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies, so who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered just like Jesus. But he says, no, nothing will separate us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, I'm confident that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let that sink in. That God didn't just love you from a distance. He didn't just love you in eternity past. He's not going to just love you in eternity future, but he loves you right now. He loves you enough that he sent his son. How will he who gave us his only son not give us everything else that we need? There's no limit to the, the love that God has for you. It, it's why we gather as a church is to remember weekly what Jesus did on our behalf, what he did for us, and how that translates into how we live for him every day. You can't do this on your own. Your best is not good enough. So if you're here today and you're saying, you know, Rob, I'm just going to try a little harder. That's, that's not going to do it. That's not going to bring you into relationship with Jesus Christ that will save you. It's only when you reach the point that you say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to look to Jesus and I'm going to look to the cross. And I'm going to put my faith in him. I'm going to put, excuse the pun, all of my eggs in that basket. If Christ can't do it, then I'm in trouble. And that's the Easter message, guys, is that out of death comes life. But in order for life to spring up, in order for a resurrection to occur, there's got to be death. You've got to stop trying it on your own. You've got to stop trying to work your way back to God. You've got to stop trying to be good enough for the Lord. And you've got to say, Lord, I'm not. But Jesus was. And I want to enter your presence through the blood of Jesus. Through the way that he made as he died on the cross. And then presented himself to you. It's that perfect, spotless sacrifice. So maybe today, listen, you could have been in church your whole life the way that I was and still trying to, to get good enough to make God happy. And the message of Easter is this, that you can't, but that Jesus has. And so today could be a day where you turn to God and say, God, look, I'm going to stop relying upon my strength and my goodness, and I'm going to put everything in my faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So I want us to pray together, and uh, I want to ask you to really look at your heart and, and answer this question. What are you trusting? What are you looking to for your salvation? Who is it that you turn to when, when, when you try to find that peace? Are you looking to yourself or, or to Jesus? Or have you just plainly just given up and said, Lord, I, just, I give up. I can't do this. Or maybe I'll just try a little harder. Instead today, maybe you just need to look up to Jesus. When we think about it, guys, listen, using some of that Old Testament terminology, Jesus, we know, was, was God, who is the one that demanded perfection in the first place. But Jesus was also our priest who offered perfection himself. But not only was he the one that demanded perfection and offered perfection, but Jesus was the sacrifice that was perfect. And the only one that could satisfy what the Father demanded.
And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And the best response that we can have is to say, thank you, Lord, for what you did on my behalf. And I trust you, not anything else. Let's pray.